The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. On the first day of the week at early dawn, the women came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. We celebrate on Easter the real triumph of life over death. Indeed, there remains a battle to this very day between the forces of life and death. It is a titanic struggle between good and evil, between God and the devil. Now, make no mistake, of course, God has already won the victory. Even death does not keep Jesus in the grave. But because the forces of evil never give up without a fight, they will scheme and lie to us every which way to draw us from the God of life and towards the culture of death. Now, maybe that phrase is familiar to you, the culture of death. I first heard it in Roman Catholic circles. Pope John Paul II, he either coined the phrase or he popularized it. But he used it to synthesize a number of, of movements or ideas that had one thing in common. Their priority was not for the sustaining, celebration, or defense of life. They were rather opposed, either aggressively or passive-aggressively, to the strategies and policies and choices that led to human flourishing. They were, that is, these forces in the culture of death, they were part of the culture of death. I thought it was such a brilliant turn of phrase that the mere saying of it would bring an end to the culture of death. It made it so clear who the enemies of God really were, what they were up to, and it stood in such stark contrast to the God of life that I thought, wow, he really hit the nail on the head with that one. Revival, here we come. Sometimes the mere naming of a thing gives you power over it, like when Jesus 
names the, the demon legion, right? He has power over it. Well, this collection of forces had been given a fitting name. And from here on out, we would surely have the upper hand. Well, I'm not sure that even such a masterful identification of the problem has brought it to an end, either by commission or omission, the culture of death advances in a world that either joyfully celebrates it or is asleep at the switch, blissfully unaware of the ferocious train coming down the tracks. The culture of death is seen in the most obvious of places, like abortion clinics and euthanasia laws, in the normalization of drug use. But it is also embedded into more innocuous patterns of life. It is the oxygen of popular culture, and it has been for years. Parents, if you know that your children listen to Megan the Stallion and you have not ripped the modem out of your wall yet, you are letting the culture of death into your home, for example. It's part of our economy and politics. Tell me, what politician this side of Eastern Europe is making any effort to allow for a one-parent uh, household, that is a one-income-earning household, or to encourage large families, should a couple desire that? None that I know of. We have normalized this two-income uh, household, which has brought us financial benefits to be sure but it has also cost us children. I mean, who has the time? Oh, and there's something weird going on with our fertility rates. But don't think me a conspiracy theorist. I'm just following the data. Here's an article that quotes the Lancet in the CDC in summary. Declining fertility rates are a trend around the world. Since 1950, the total global fertility rate has dropped by half according to the Lancet's Comprehensive Global Burden of Disease Study. In the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention points out that the U.S. fertility rate has been falling steadily since 2008 and has never returned to its recorded peak in 1958. Now, the hypothesized reasons for that vary. could be biological, could be the food supply, could be the fact that we simply are more affluent and we usually have fewer children historically when we reach that point. Maybe it's unavoidable. Perhaps without an agreed-upon vision uh, or worldview, though, or plan or strategy for the creation and protection of life, we shouldn't expect it to just materialize. Indeed, what we see with our own two eyes, assuming they are truly open, is that very powerful forces in business and culture and government are not about life. Overpopulation, for example, is assumed to be a big problem by a lot of powerful people. It was said first out loud by Thomas Malthus. It's where we get the phrase Malthusian. But I heard lectures at seminary, seminary of all places, about overpopulation and the dreaded danger it portended. That was 20 years ago. They said that fewer people 
Well, hey, that means more food and water for everyone else and less pollution and fewer harmful effects on endangered species. It also means fewer people in case no one noticed. In other words, it's not only the ending of life, but the ways in which we do not protect it that legitimizes and feeds the culture of death. And by the way, if we don't know what a man is or a woman is, I have no clue how we could ever defend a culture of life. The basic acts of reproduction, provision, defense, and encouragement towards life cannot be taken for granted. Indeed, the spiritual battleground on which you find yourself, whether you like it or not, is a battle between life and death, and it is our sacred duty to pay attention to it. But I have only briefly outlined one side of this battle. Lest we forget what God has to say on this subject, and it is a full-throated defense of life. Not only does God defend life in his word, he puts his body where his mouth is. On this Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But the resurrection isn't just about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and it isn't just about your own resurrection from the dead, which the glorified body of Jesus points towards. And when I lie on my deathbed, or when that bus is barreling down the the road for me to, to claim this life for me, it is the vision of the empty tomb to which I will be clinging. But the resurrection also stands as the ultimate witness of the God of life. It is the continuation of God's revelation that is all about the goodness of life from the beginning to the end. The first words of the Bible are about the creation of life. And the very last chapter of the Bible, at least one of the last few chapters in Revelation, is about John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Today is said to be the eighth day of the week, right? The first day of the week is about creation. And today is a day of recreation, new creation, the resurrection. Jesus plainly teaches that he desires that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be complete. That's a life-affirming message, I would say. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He raises the dead and heals the sick and turns water into wine at a marriage of all places. He feeds the 5,000 and then 4,000, and he casts out demons who are killing their host. He speaks against the political and social evils of his day, the very forces that would rapaciously steal a widow's last two pennies or discriminate against an unclean man wounded and left for dead by the side of the road. With everything he says and everything he does, Jesus is all about life. And he is revealing more fully and more perfectly the God who is all about life. 
Life is measured in children and grandchildren. Life measured in joy and in hope. Life measured in healing and cure. Life measured in meaning and purpose. Life measured in eternity, when these dead bodies of ours will be glorified by God and raised to a world that is no longer marked by sin and death and disease. That is what God is all about. So that is what we are all about. We are about the defeat of those evil forces that take life through violence. We are about the defeat of those who would limit or lessen life with a false promise and a smile. We are about the total rejection of the devil and all his empty promises. For it is life or death. It is Christ or chaos. And if we think that the stakes are anything less than that, then we are guilty of letting the culture of death get the upper hand while we enjoy the last gasp of a dying civilization. For God has proven again and again that he is the God of life, and Jesus has proclaimed in word and deed the gospel of life. For he was dead, but now he is alive. His tomb is empty, and death could not contain him. So we will no longer look for the living among the dead. Rather, we choose life, and we live, and we will be risen from the dead. Hallelujah, he is risen.